Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Lisa Chaplin, the author of The Tide Watchers, a novel about Napoleonic France. It's 1802, and Europe is at peace, sort of. Napoleon rules France as first consul, and he has strong-armed many of the surrounding governments into signing a series of treaties. He breaks these agreements as it suits him, nibbling at Piedmont, Parma, Venice, even Switzerland, without ever pushing quite hard enough to force the larger European powers to unite against him. England's politicians, tired of fighting the French revolutionary forces, and with the renowned Royal Navy dispersed around the world, place their faith in the Treaty of Amiens and reject rumors that Napoleon may be gathering an invasion force. But a small band of spies known as the King's Men is determined to procure evidence of the First Consul's plans. Chapter 1. Etaples, France, by the English Channel, August 16, 1802. Commander, we got another semaphore message from the ship. The muffled words were a shade too loud, proud, and English for their current position on the Etaples, Boulogne Road. King's man and unlisted ship's commander, Duncan Aylsham, parted the curtain of the hired coach and let the window right down. His skinny, freckle-faced cabin boy, Mark, met Duncan's quelling frown with a grin. Instead of knocking on the coach roof from his seat on the box, as his commander had ordered, he leaped down and was hanging monkey-like on the running board of the moving coach. His eyes, blue as the summer sky behind, laughed too. Even his shock of spiky red hair glistened as if in comical argument. The damn boy knew the protocol, the way to act and speak, but never did unless it was forced from him. "'What did you say?' "'Who am I? And what country are we currently journeying in?' Ilsham demanded in French, in a tone calculated to dampen pretension. "'Lord, love ye, monsieur. I tell ye, I got me cover.' Mark switched to French while managing to keep his cockney accent. Duncan longed to grab one of the ears sticking out from his head and pull it. "'I ain't Mark Henshaw. I'm Marcus René Balfour, coach boy from the slums of Paris.' You're nobody's commander, and you ain't got no ship. You're a gentleman of means, a frog gentleman. But what's the point in wasting time on the lies when there ain't a body about to appreciate it? Duncan spoke through gritted teeth. You obviously do not get it, or you wouldn't half scream the word semaphore. And once you start using an identity, never leave it until it's dangerous or no longer needed. No self-respecting agent would dream of being so stupid. The boy's face fell to ludicrous proportions. This is your first mission, and it will be your last with me, Duncan reinforced the lesson in icy tones. I don't reward disobedience and insubordination. The boy stammered. But, monsieur, I didn't. You know I'm good. What you'll be is thrash before you're much older, boy, unless you respect your betters and obey. Second Lieutenant Burton growled from the box in flawless French. Mark stiffened and muttered a sulky apology beneath his breath. If there was one person who did frighten him, it was the stiff rump Burton, who no doubt would thrash him. Later. And now, please join me in welcoming Lisa Chaplin. Hi, Lisa. I'm looking forward to chatting with you today. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. No worries. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'd like to start by asking about you as a writer. Um, the Tide Watchers is your first historical mainstream novel, but it's not your debut novel. You've written a whole series of books as Melissa James. So when and how did you begin writing? 
Um, I actually began writing back in 1991 when my husband showed me an article on how much a very famous um, category romance author Emma Darcy earns. And my husband said, you've got a good imagination. You should try to write while you're at home with the kids. And I thought about it and it was something that my teachers and student guidance counsellor had always told me to do. But I was, I was obsessed with being a nurse as a child. So I nursed first and then when my husband sent me, gave me this article, I thought, all right, I'm going to try. So I did. That's great. And how did you get started once you decided to try? I think I was always an issues girl. I've always been an issues girl. So my first story was about a forbidden love between an Aboriginal guy, which is, um, you know, our, our Indigenous people, mm-hmm. and, and, a, and a rich white girl. And it was terrible. It was beyond terrible. I it, think all first novels are terrible. I mean, not the first ones you publish, but the first ones you write. Oh, you've got no idea. I, I don't show that to anybody. I still got it just because it, it's a reminder, if you know what I mean, that you've got to keep trying to improve yourself. <laughs> but it was awful. And, um, and it didn't last more than like three chapters anyway. So it was, you know, useless. So I put that away and I tried another one and I actually got to finish that book. So I wrote a query letter to Harlequin because, you know, that was my husband said to try romance and that I actually got asked for a full, a full novel, which I did not know was a good thing at the time. I was such an ignoramus. I sent it away and they rejected it, but they said, if you have anything else, please send it to me. Again, I did not know that was a good thing. And I got quite offended. <laughs> and, and I stopped writing romance novels and I started getting into sagas. So I wrote a couple of those and then I got a phone call that changed my life. Uh, a Sydney-based agent actually called me and she said, Lisa, when you write relationships it sends shivers down my spine the way you write about people I see your people I feel your people but said you desperately need editing discipline so I want you to go and write a romance novel I thought oh okay back to romance but and she said I want you to join RWA and I said what's that and she told me the romance writers of Australia so I rang up Romance Writers of Australia that day and I joined and it was only three weeks before a conference and I went to that conference and I found my tribe. I found a, a bunch of romance writers that actually wanted me to join their group, join their writers group, which was amazing to me and I found out about writing competitions and I actually sent in a book that I wrote, and it won a prize. It didn't win first, but it won a prize. So I thought, this is a pretty good gig. And I started writing more romance novels. And three years later, I got my first contract with Harlequin 
through winning the Clendon Award, which was a, a New Zealand-based full manuscript novel. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah, I mean, it's after the fact, but still, congratulations. That's great. As a side point, that was actually a rewrite of my very first book with my Aboriginal hero and my rich white girl. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> that must have been very satisfying. <laughs> actually was but it shows you how stubborn I am I just don't give up on stories so why did you then decide to switch gears so to speak from contemporary romances to historical fiction historic history has always fascinated me I was the nerdy girl who not only did history at school in high school but stayed up back after school to watch documentaries like the world at war and I Claudius I, I absolutely was enthralled by those documentaries and it began a lifelong love affair which now continues with the man my, my husband calls my boyfriend, Neil Oliver. Do you know him? He does, he does British-based uh, historical documentaries. Oh, no, I don't think I do know him. He's Scottish. He's got a gorgeous and adorable voice and my husband, if, if there's one on and I'm busy doing something else, my husband will yell out, your boyfriend's on, and I come running out and I watch Neil Oliver. (laughs) (laughs) So your website mentions a Nighthawk series, which from the description sounds as if it's somewhere between their contemporary romances and the Tidewatchers, which we're going to get to next. Um, Tell us a bit about that series and what it means to you and where it fits into your overall journey. Well, I have to tell you first, I'm extremely impressed that you picked that up. Nobody else has ever picked up the connection between my Nighthawk series and the Tide Watchers. You're the first. Oh, well, <laughs> good for me. <laughs> yeah. it, it really, I was like, wow, this woman's good. So I actually do call them the Tide Watchers, the Nighthawks in history. My, my first editor, Leslie Wanger, said that she loved that those books were deeply romantic but walked the mainstream line. And it's something I've almost always done. It doesn't matter what genre I've written for, I've always been sailed very close to the mainstream wind. And uh, I think if if my uh, senior editors had not changed for that line, I would probably still be writing spy romance novels now. But they did change and I never sold another book. And so I had... I had that still love of espionage fiction and that love of history. And a couple of years later, I just found the marriage together and I just wrote historical espionage fiction and fell in love. So, yet yeah, the, the Nighthawks are still very close to my heart and I actually have another five stories pretty well fleshed out in my head, but they'll probably never make it to the page. So that's a contemporary espionage series? The Nighthawks. Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't say that, did I? No, The Nighthawks was contemporary espionage fiction. And I I wrote them for um, only about two years. I had three of them accepted and two actually became Romantic Times um, top picks. They were, And I, I was riding high on them. I absolutely loved espionage fiction. So I think... Combining my love of history and my love of espionage fiction came out in the Tide Watchers. 
So tell us about that. What drew you to the story that became the Tide Watchers? How did that get going? <laughs> That's a bit of a weird story. Um, an American friend of mine, a, a fellow writer, was in Sydney with her family and she asked if I'd play tour guide for a day, which I happily did. We were touring the Sydney Maritime Museum and the history and the ships and everything in that museum made me fall in love with history all over again. In fact, I raved so much about the place and dawdled so long over the exhibits. And by the way, that's a habit that greatly annoys my family in absolutely any museum I'm in. But I stayed so long, Linda asked me, she said, what, Lisa, why aren't you writing historical fiction? And I thought about it later and thought it was probably just insecurity. I, I didn't have a degree in his, history. So I, you know what, I, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. it, it's a very interesting period that you've chosen. Um, I give a bit of background in my introduction, but I have to admit I took that from your novel. I, I grew up on tales of Nelson at Trafalgar and Wellington at Waterloo. I was an avid reader of Georgette Hare, including The Spanish Bride and An Infamous Army, which were both set during the Napoleonic Wars. And as a historian, I'm sort of familiar with the general trajectory of Napoleon's career, especially his Russian campaign, because I'm a Russian historian. But this early period of his rule, being 1802, 1803, um, is largely unfamiliar to me. So what made you decide to focus on these particular years? Well, I ha uh, that, that's actually a continuation of the story I was just telling. I went into the museum store that day and found the book which changed my life again. It's called The Terror Before Trafalgar by Tom Pocock. I read the blurb, took a peek inside, and was soon so immersed in the book that Linda had to remind me that her family was hungry. <laughs> so I bought the book and I read it all the way home on the train. And in that book were some references that felt unfinished to me. Why Britain declared war so suddenly after two years of bending over backwards to conciliate Napoleon, why France had almost 1,000 more ship warships than the Treaty of Amiens allowed within two months of war declaring. And remember, we're not talking about a time of fast shipbuilding here. And why it seemed that Britain provoked Bonaparte into aggression one night in the Tuileries Palace in front of a crowd why the ambassador, Lord Whitworth, who was known for his exquisite manners, was famously rude, not just to Bonaparte that night, but to dozens of British nationals who were there at the palace. And these, among many small incidents, made me feel that there was a hidden story. And I'm, a, I'm what I call a hidden history addict. I began collecting books on that era, DVDs, reading historians and books from our local university, looking up websites. Then, I think the final inciting incident was moving to Switzerland. Oh, do tell. How does that work? Well, my husband got transferred. It was quite funny. My husband one day came home and said, Lisa, how do you feel about Switzerland? And I looked at him. I said, as opposed to what? And he said, how do you feel about moving to Switzerland? I looked and said, are you kidding? Can we go tomorrow? You know, I, I always, always wanted to go to Europe. And it was really that whole thing about I, I'd started this book, but as I said, I just didn't feel like I was qualified. So anyway, we moved to Switzerland. Well, we were only supposed to go for three to six months. 
But the day I arrived there, my husband said, uh, by the way, they're closing down the Australian branch and they want us to move here. And it was a dream come true for me. I mean, I still had to check out schools and stuff for our son, but it was an absolute dream come true. I, I fell in love. I was completely immersed in the European culture, the architecture and the amount of history at my fingertips. I couldn't go back. I still wrote a few more romances, but after that, that was the end for me. I just had to write historical fiction. So there's a lot of research that goes into this novel. I mean, it's very obvious on the page. I I don't want that to sound the wrong way because it's it's actually seamless. I mean, it's wonderfully integrated with the story, but it's clear that you must have done a lot of research to get all of those details right. So what kinds of sources did you use? How did you work the facts into a fictional story? That's a a big answer for this question. Sorry, Carolyn, I hope you're ready for it. Go ahead. We have lots of time. Okay. Well, the terror before Trafalgar, as I said, started, reignited my love of history. And I read that book cover to cover and finding the unfinished questions in that book, I started buying more deep, more books that I bought so many books on the life of Napoleon, Um, Napoleon by Vincent Cronin, um, the Napoleon series by Max Gallo, um, I can't, I've got dozens and dozens of books on the subject. I began haunting my local university, which is the University of Newcastle in New South Wales. And I would write, I wrote some of the book there while I because every time I had something, I ran into an obstacle with my story. I would always check the facts every time because facts inspire me. And I I like to be flexible as a writer. I, I, think that it's counterproductive for me at least to be so married to my synopsis or my timeline uh, timeline for my for the fiction that I would ignore a fact so every time I found a fact I would change the book again because I feel that good historical fiction the best kind of historical fiction in my opinion is the kind that does marry excellent research with the fiction and so it's I, I I did more and more research bought more and more books checked out websites DVDs but I think the final push for me for getting this book right was an absolutely magnificent book called Secret Service British Agents in France 1792 to 1815 by Elizabeth Sparrow I was given this book as a gift by a librarian friend of mine when I was raving about it to her. She said, oh, go borrow it, take it home. And about two weeks later I emailed her. I said, Heather, this book is the best thing I've ever read. Where did you get it? I want to buy one. She said, keep it. And I'm like, are you kidding? I'll buy it. She goes, no, no, I'm a librarian. If somebody loves a book, I want them to have it. And I only found out when I covered it in notes and post-it notes and highlighting that it's worth $400. (laughs) Best friend ever award. (laughs) 
absolutely. It sounds like a wonderful book, though. I mean, it's the kind of book that you you worry a little bit, perhaps, about the person who spent all their time writing the book, but to find it is an absolute gem. It's a, it's beyond a gem. I could not believe that it had the real life code names of all the major British spies of the time and many of the French. I was I, I've actually got a whole list of real life spies and their code names which are in my book, could be in my book. I better leave out of my book because it's just too many. There were hundreds and hundreds of them across Europe in a network that I could use. And I think that more than anything helped make my book the marriage of research and fiction that it is because there were so many fascinating people. I didn't have to use too many fiction and I didn't have my fictional characters push my real-life characters into anything. I had it the other way around. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, it sounds wonderful, and you can see it in the novel. Um, I want to talk about the characters um, very soon. Uh, There's one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, because it surprised me, is the importance of the Louisiana Purchase in your story. And this is part of the historical part of it, because I I actually grew up in, in Britain as a child, and then I came here when I was 11 to the United States, and so I learned the Louisiana Purchase in school. But in the United States, it's always told from the American perspective. You know, it's important for the expansion of the frontier and the establishment of the United States. And what was really interesting was that in your book, we see the importance of the Louisiana Purchase for the French. Yes. So um, I don't remember anyone mentioning in school why why Napoleon wanted to make the sale. So could you say a little bit about that and how it fits into the very big picture of your novel? Because it's it's a wonderful book with all kinds of overlapping plot threads, so I don't want to give big plot points away, but just the general importance of it to the background of the novel. Yes, of course. Thank you. Well, that was actually uh, my piecing together of the tale based on what history didn't say. As I said, I'm a hidden history addict. And you have sometimes to find the story, you have to piece all of the facts together and then the hole in the middle is the truth that you write. Does that make sense? Yes. Ah, okay. So you, I won't say you made it up, but you you, uh, hypothesized it based on the information. I've hypothesized is better than making it up, yeah. I, I wanted to tell this story from all sides of the spectrum. See, I find most history books tell most of the story from the side of the victor and also from the side of the famous people. But tour guides in New Orleans told me, several of them told me, that Napoleon had just 20 days in which he got the uh, Louisiana back from Spain and sold it on. But that didn't tally with me because James Monroe sailed all the way from America to broker the purchase. And back then it did take a lot longer than 20 days to get there. So it it made it obvious to me that more was going on. Does that... um, So... He, and I, from what I got from the books was that he was pushing for the sale for months, even when Spain still owned it. So 
the reasons for the French needing the money uh, for me were there was the rebellion in Haiti, which was then called San Domingue. The war with Britain had absolutely brokered France, okay? they Even though as the first consul, Napoleon took France from a staggering 470 million franc debt to a small surplus within two years, he didn't have enough yet to pay for his army. And, by the way, he had way more armed forces also than the Treaty of Amiens allowed. He had a 1,000 more ships and he had to pay them all. And from the history books, it is clear that he did pay them all and on time. So he had to get the money from somewhere. And, yes, he invaded Piedmont and Parma and Venice in Italy and he took away their their riches but that had only cleared his debt. He still needed money to pay all of his people. He promised the French people, the average French people, that he would do better by them and he would pay them for what they did. And he did pay them. So to me, that was one of the biggest reasons that Napoleon pushed for the Louisiana Purchase. But the final one is also, as you say, don't go too far, the secret in the book. And I think it might be best if I leave it at that. Yes, yes, don't go there. <laughs> Let, let's move on. And because in, in this world, um, with for all its adherence to historical facts and speculation about history, well-informed speculation about history, this is, after all, a novel. And so let's talk about your characters. Let's start with Duncan Ailsham, whom I have introduced in the introduction. And um, tell us, don't tell us who he is, because that's another important point. But uh, tell us what kind of man he is, what he does for a living, what, where he is when we first meet him. Sure. Duncan, essentially, Duncan is a man alone, raised by a semi-psychotic man who committed murder to gain an heir. Duncan obviously has real trust issues. He believes he's unworthy of a family, but he desperately wants to belong to his second father, his mentor. He became a king's man or a spy for the crown. That's a king's man was a spy for the crown. Soon after, he picked his mentor's pocket at 15. He was obviously unsuccessful because his mentor grabbed him. But Sir Edward Sunderland, his mentor, had worked with Duncan's real father. He recognised the face and saw the potential to exploit a boy all on his own. Duncan doesn't even see that he spent his life being exploited by others until it's too late. So when we first meet him, he's uh, doing his best to train an insubordinate cabin boy named Mark. Um, They receive a semaphore message from their ship alerting them that Lord Camelford... um, popularly called the Mad Baron, is on the loose. Now, Camelford was a real person, although he often behaved like a character in a novel. He must have been a writer's dream to stumble over, so do tell us about him. (laughs) Yes. Oh, definitely. Camelford really was an author's dream. I could not believe how, how many bizarre things he did. He was born into the Pitt family, which, if any historian knows um, Pitt. Um, there was Pitt the Older and Pitt the Younger, who were both prime ministers of Great Britain. 
Um, but Camelford, Camelford's father was still the head of the Pitt family and the first Baron Camelford, although there were earls on the other side. Pitt's, Pitt's mother was an earl's daughter. Camelford believed that being a Pitt was the pinnacle of society. Sadly for the child, though, he was sent away to Switzerland at age seven to school and his father left him there even during holiday periods for four or five years. Young Camelford later called them the happiest four years of his life, which is really rather sad if you think about it. But then his father recalled him, wanting to lick him into shape as the next baron. But by then, the father and son were just too far apart. By 14, Camelford nagged his father into joining the Navy. But his ungovernable temper was already formed. He was, a, he was slightly unbalanced, obviously. But if you combine that with arrogance, that droit de seigneur attitude he had and his temper, the Navy was an explosive combination for him. He actually became a hero by the age of 16. He stayed on a sinking ship with the captain, helping to patch up the ship and save it and save its cargo. And he got it back to port in South Africa. But he was in an age where people with a title were raised up to, could be raised up very easily. He became a first lieutenant and captain way too young and he gained command of a ship far too young. Soon, he had killed a junior lieutenant for insubordination. He shot him straight through the heart when he refused to obey an order. An order, mind you, which would have probably killed everybody on the ship. He also stalked and caned a former captain half to death for naval discipline that Camelford couldn't accept. Once he was, he was actually asked to leave the Navy, obviously, by that point. His family paid his way out of the murder charge and out of the half-killing the captain. They paid enormous amounts to keep him out of prison or hanged. Once he was back in England, he was actually famous for what's called boxing the watch. Have you ever heard that saying? Well, I have because I'm a payer fan, but I'm not sure that all the listeners have. So explain what boxing the watch is. Yep, it's actually beating up officers of the law. <laughs> People who are there to watch over the, the uh, health and safety of their citizens. But because he always paid them off, they didn't mind. They quite liked him because they didn't mind if they got beaten up because that meant they got a, at least a couple of weeks wage that they could take home for a few good bruises. And he got to get out his temper on, on total strangers. So as you can see, I hope, everything I put into the Tide Watchers was true, except that he hid away on Duncan's ship. He actually did stow away onto an unknown ship to get to France. He, he did try to kill Napoleon and he was imprisoned. So, and just wait till you hear what he gets up to in the next book. <laughs> I can hardly wait. Um, it's a mark, I think, of, of everything that Duncan has going on. The, the Camelford is something of a distraction from him, for him. He's, uh, he's actually got another mission altogether, which is looking for his mentor's daughter, Elizabeth. So tell us uh, who Elizabeth is and why Duncan is looking for her. Yeah. And again, Liz who she is as a person, not necessarily 
I mean, obviously the the raw details of her background, but no, nothing that's going to spoil the story. Yeah, that's that's a big ask. But I have Lisbeth is Sir, Sir Edward Sunderland's runaway daughter. She uh, Sir, Sir Edward wants to know his daughter's safe, so he sends Duncan to find her and just make sure she's okay. But Sir Edward isn't sure if he wants her home. She's ruined herself by at, by the age of eighteen by marrying not just the wrong man but a bad man and a spy and killer for both Napoleon Bonaparte and Joseph Boucher, who was the most sadistic spy master in history as far as I'm concerned. Um, yes, uh, it is very difficult to talk about it because I, 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 when I was drawing up these questions, I, I was very careful to think about what could I ask that wasn't going to, because everything is so tightly put together that it's hard to start talking about it too much without unraveling things. But the man that you're talking about, Alain de la Corte, uh, who's not, he, he's referred to as her, her ex, so to speak, um, in modern speak, when we meet him, but he really can't be because they didn't have divorce in those days without an act of parliament or whatever. The, I think probably not at all in France, actually, but... So he's kind of a sadist. Um, he's taken their baby and he's um, he's set uh, on not letting Elizabeth anywhere near the child. But he too has a history. So, um, you know, he's. I think we couldn't say that he's not a bad man. He he definitely is a bad man. But he he's not entirely an... Oh, no, I would say he's a not sympathetic character. <laughs> I'm not doing a good job with this. But, but there are reasons why he is such a beastly character. Let's put it that way. Yes. Actually, Alain's history is a sad one, based on too many stories I read about the time. During the later years of the revolution, which you've probably heard referred to as the terror, his father was informed upon by a neighbour who was jealous of Delacorte's pretty wife. So Alain sees his, at, sees his father beheaded, one of only 50,000 very sad stories of people beheaded in two years of the terror, and then he goes home to find his mother beat, raped and beaten senseless by that same neighbour. And Alain's quest for vengeance warps the 15-year-old boy and turns him into a killing machine for the famed sadistic spymaster, Joseph Fouché. Yeah, it's, it's a very sad story. Um, and when we when Duncan first finds Lisbeth, she's in a tavern in Abbeville, uh trying to make a living because, you know, I, 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 I'm sorry, I, I don't remember absolutely whether Alain has thrown her out or whether she's run away from him um, and then she's not allowed back to, to see her child. But she's trying to stay away from him in any case mm -hmm. while trying to figure out how to get the baby back. Yes. And this is really a sense of, in a sense, the beginning of the story when these two get together. So mm -hmm. how does uh, Duncan convince Lisbeth to help him? Well, Lisbeth is actually a, a very desperate young woman at this point. The only thing she wants, she wants two things in life. She wants her baby and she wants to go home. And she can't have either, it seems to her. She is forced to make a living for herself when, her, when Alan takes the baby and leaves her in a mountain of debt. So she's working, as you say, as a tavern wench in Abbeville. So, um, and... What, that's when Duncan, when and where Duncan finds her. She is watched over by the people of the town 
for Alan, who is the son of the one once ago local, local lord, whom they were all fond of. So, at this point, when he finds her, Duncan finds out that some terrible things are about to happen almost simultaneously in both England and France. And on the same day, he finds out something that makes him realise he can't trust anyone he knows. So he has to make a desperate deal with the only person he knows isn't in league with Napoleon, Fouché or Alain, and that's Lisbeth. So he makes a desperate deal. If she'll help him find and sabotage Napoleon's secret invasion fleet using only a hand-cranked submarine and a drill that she has to seduce from the famous inventor Robert Fulton, he promises to return her baby to her and send them home. I'm glad you brought up Robert Fulton because that was as interesting as the Louisiana Purchase. I have all the things I was expecting before I read the, the back cover of the book. Robert Fulton in Napoleonic France was a complete surprise to me. So how did you get him? I mean, was he actually in France at that time? Yes, he actually was. He was in both those books that I've mentioned before, The Terror Before Trafalgar and also um, Secret Service. It made it very clear um, Robert Fulton first went to England, I think it was around 1789 or somewhere like that. He was actually a painter at first, very talented one. Actually, there is still one of his paintings in the British Museum and I think one in the Louvre, but I can't remember. I could be wrong with the Louvre. I can't remember the other one. But in 1792, two or three, he crossed over to France. He was actually an enthusiastic Republican. And the fact that the Jacobin were in power at the time, he thought that this was a great thing. Obviously, this was at the start of the terror and not at the end. And he began very quickly getting into invention. It was one of his passions. Even as a young child, he was tinkering with things to try and invent something new and wonderful. And he began, he, he began his lifelong love affair with steam engines and steamboats, but he couldn't get anywhere. So he began to fiddle with submarines, then called submersible boats. Mm-hmm. And um, he really was in France there at that time. He was in France from 1793 to 1804. And he continually tried to interest the leaders of the time, especially Napoleon, with either steamships or submersible boats. And he he actually told Napoleon that he could shoot a missile that he called a corpse, which is quite a gross name, but it is the forerunner of today's torpedo. He could shoot it more than 50 feet to sink a ship. And after a failed attempt... Fulton really did disappear off the radar for some five to six months until he showed up again in August 1803. So he was perfect for my purposes. He disappeared for six months and I used those six months to the absolute limit. (laughs) I think maybe we should mention, uh, I I would hope that people who are listening to this are aware of it, but I think maybe we should mention that 
everything that Lisbeth does is deeply shocking to the people of her time. That we think of the the kinds of things that we think of as appropriate behavior for a young girl are entirely inappropriate for her. It doesn't mean that she herself is an amoral person or a bad person, but she's duped by Alain early on. But she, you know, talk a little bit about that aspect of it, because being in the tavern, seducing Fulton or being asked to seduce Fulton, I mean, all of that is is completely opposed to what is expected of young women at that time. Yes. Uh, Elizabeth was born a lady. She was a baronet's daughter, part of British society. Back then, around that in that time period, women were expected to do nothing more than marry well, raise children, and if they were extremely inventive, they could design a hat or a or new wallpaper for a room. They could do that. But for a woman to earn her own living and especially to, to spy was a terribly shocking thing. They would be ruined forever. Women, it's so shocking was it at the time that, that women weren't, there was only two women in both books that I mentioned before, even referenced as spies. One was a French girl and they, and they gave her name, but there was another very famous woman, never named, and said that she was the best spy Britain had and she's only ever refer, referenced as the incomparable which was her code name. So that's because women could not step outside the bounds of what was expected for them without destroying their family and ruining their good name forever. The only way they could ever redeem themselves from such a shocking thing was if they married somebody very rich and, and have a position in high society. So Lisbeth, what everything Lisbeth did, she had to think very carefully about what she was going to do and how far she was willing to go to have her baby because if she went too far, she couldn't have her baby. She would destroy even her son. So it was a massive risk, everything she did in the book. And that's a very important part of it. I mean, once we realize that, we really care for her. We want her to come out of it um, with a, a whole skin. I mean, not just to get what she wants, but even to just survive the whole thing emotionally. Yes. Yeah, it, it's a massive, it's such a massive thing. Women today would find it extremely hard to understand. But right up until really World War One. That was how it was for women for hundreds of years. And you look at it even now in, in some countries of the world, it's still the same for women. Yes, it certainly is. Um, it definitely is in, in quite a number of places still. Yeah. So uh, it's the reader should have figured out by now there's quite a lot going on in this novel. And there we've I think we've reached the point where I don't want to go further unless you're comfortable telling mm-hmm. us more about it. So there are characters that we haven't talked about. There are... Um, you mentioned that, that Duncan has no one he can trust other than Elizabeth and so on and so forth. Are there parts of the story that I haven't asked you about that you really would like listeners to hear? Um, I, I did have one more point on uh, that I just I loved about uh, Robert Fulton. Oh, yes, why, do tell. Yeah, why I had to include him in the book, not just for his inventions, but his character 
was a brilliant one. I mean, he was so incredibly intelligent. He could he he didn't invent anything on his own, but what his genius lay in was adapting inventions that pe- other people could not make work, and he found ways to make them work. As an inventor, he was oh, as an adapter. Really, he was brilliant. As a person. He was so idealistic and yet so flawed. He was a marvellous character to include. You know, uh, there's one part of the book I don't mind giving away because people will probably ask themselves if it's true. He really did pay a man called Mr Barlow to take his wife as his mistress for two years. (laughs) He paid for the privilege and... The letters Barlow wrote his wife at that time are really sickening. Oh, my little, my little honey bunny or sweetie pie, I miss you so much, but you are doing such a wonderful thing for our family. I love you forever. Oh, I'm I'm sorry, but that was just really disgusting, you know. Oh, it is really disgusting. I I mean, I never even thought to ask whether that was true. So yeah. I'm glad that you brought it up. Yeah, but but. Fulton was so idealistically politic, po- sorry, politically idealistic, and had firm principles in every other way. I had to use that dichotomy because you know we're all flawed in one way or another, aren't we? Nobody's perfect, and Robert Fulton's character was just fascinating. Yeah, you talked about Lisbeth's, Lisbeth's half brothers and their relationship, etc. But I'd kind of be afraid to give it all away if I said any more. I know, I know. That's why I I made the question so vague. Yeah, but there is one thing you might like to know. Okay. Almost all the characters are returning in the next book called Blind Winter, including the cabin boy Mark. I actually found a real-life character that suited him perfectly, which amazed me. The half-brothers Alec and Cal also get into a situation that demands Duncan's help and Lisbeth is drawn back to Fulton. But I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> okay, great. So now I have a writing question for you. How do you keep it all straight? Oh, that's, yeah, I'm afraid my methods are rather obsessive actually. I spend months and months just researching the book and every time I find some some big fact that I know I've got to put in the book, I buy another whiteboard. <laughs> I've got I've got fifteen whiteboards in my study, and that's just whiteboards. I also have cork boards. I have photos, maps, pictures of Europe at the time. But I I have them. I'm a very visual learner, and if I don't have something in front of me, I will forget to use it. If that makes any sense to you, so I have written up whiteboards of facts and timelines for every real life character so that my characters can walk in to that I every fact I use says that there were unnamed spies who helped so I have my characters walk on into those situations so the whiteboards keep me focused and even now that I'm overseas at the moment I took pictures of every single board in my study and I printed them up and they're going up on 
uh, they're getting blue tacked on every wall of every place I'm staying in so that I can write and continue to write that seamlessly. And that's the hardest part for me being such a visual learner that I have to have it all around me all the time or I don't write. Are you naturally a plotter? Do you plot it all out or do you just put them in these situations and see what happens? No, I'm I for somebody as a romance author, I was a complete pantser, as they call it. I used to just make up stuff, make up a story and write it. My former publisher used to laugh. I would send them one paragraph blurbs and they would just buy the book from that because they knew I could make up a story out of it. And I used to just wander off into the sunset with them. But now I'm an absolutely obsessive plotter because I have so many real-life characters. I can't get it wrong because historical readers love to check facts and I don't want complaints about getting it wrong. I want people to read my book and say, wow, that, that was historically accurate as well as having fictional characters in. So, yeah, I am obsessive. The plot is complete. I have, for my next book, I have a 30-page synopsis, a three-act structure, plus the 15 boards of timelines. <laughs> so where are you on the next book? I'm 150 pages in. I'm hoping I will, I have to actually send a proposal, sorry, to my my agent in the next couple of weeks. So... I'm hoping that Blind Winter will be released next year. And, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not quite halfway in, but I'm hoping to have it finished by the end of the year. Well, that's wonderful. I really enjoyed this one. I can't wait for the next one. I don't know that I'll dare have you back because <laughs> I don't know that we could get through the second book without giving away part of the first book. But if it turns out that it is the case, then we will definitely uh, do another interview if you're interested. Oh, I'd love to. And I, I promise you, I will. Pre- if we get the questions early enough, I will prepare it so well that we won't give away the third book because there is a third book, too. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Lisa. Oh, uh, this has been an absolute pleasure, Carolyn. I can honestly say I adore speaking to people who love history as much as me. And thank you for putting up with a really confirmed history nerd. (laughs) And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been speaking with Lisa Chaplin, the author of The Tide Watchers. You can find out more about her and her books at lisachaplinauthor.com. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter, at New Books Histvic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. On my blog, I upload expanded posts about the interviews, and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. You can find current posts and information about me and my books at www.cplesley.com. The New Books Network is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider visiting our website at newbooksnetwork.com and making a donation. That's all for today. Please check back soon for another conversation about new books in historical fiction. Mm-hmm.